Genre. everyone and welcome to the protagonist podcast where each week we look at a great character in a great story i'm joe dorowski and this week we're discussing Anne dorrit from the novel little dorrit and joining us for the discussion is hannah rogers welcome hannah hi thanks for having me and i can't remember if we've had you on since i need to introduce you as dr rogers but congratulations oh thank you yeah it's it's been a minute <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we, ha- we have not had you on often enough, uh, unfortunately, but this is the correct uh, topic for us to have you on to talk about because Little Dort is a novel by Charles Dickens, and my understanding is that you are quite the Dickens fan. Just a little bit. It's 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 only <laughs> the reason, like Little Dort is only the reason I got into grad school, kind of. And so was, was this particular text like something that was invo- you were involved with with your dissertation, looking at Little Dort? Actually, not for my dissertation. Um I, I mean, I, I wrote about it a little bit, um, but my chapter on Dickens mostly focused on A Tale of Two Cities. But for my honors thesis in undergrad, I wrote 22 long pages on Little Dorrit and used it as my writing sample. So this is a book that is very near and dear to me. Well, for anyone who is not familiar, Little Dort is a novel by Charles Dickens that was published between 1855 and 1857. We'll explain that long publication schedule in a little bit. And it tells the story of Amy Dorrit, a girl who was born and raised in a debtor's prison, and her family struggles with both poverty and eventually unexpected wealth. It is divided into two books. Book one is called Poverty, and book two is called Riches. I, I think it's, you know, an okay, like, thumbnail sketch, but I just want the audience to appreciate it. This is a long book <laughs> just a little bit uh charles dickens like i think most people are are very familiar with a christmas carol which is a pretty quick read like you you can sit down and read charles uh, a christmas carol and be done in an evening i don't think that's possible with little dort so i listened to an audiobook version of this and it was i want to say 38 hours long my library um already snapped it you know snatched it back because there was a wait list behind me to listen to little little dort uh so i can't go double check exact the exact length but it was um, one of the longer audiobooks in a while that uh that I've that I've had. And so I imagine the the actual text is is hefty <laughs> if you were to pick up this one. I got stopped at TSA once for Little Dorrit. Okay, that is one of the greatest sentences that's ever been uttered on the podcast. Please continue. I also once got stopped at TSA for an even larger novel, Sir Charles Grandison, on the way to an 18th century studies conference. I get stopped a lot <laughs> for my books. And actually I believe some of my students when I taught Little Dorrit told me they also got stopped by TSA. So, so what? Why does a large book cause TSA red flags? I don't know. Um, Something like as it goes through the X-ray machine gets. I guess gets. Flagged. I guess they can't like see it, but like they they took out like my books and just like flip through them, and I guess like. I don't know. It mm-hmm. seemed like they were checking to make sure the book was real. Um, I've also been stopped right. for board games where they've taken apart the board game and like looked at all the little components. I don't know. I can just imagine like one piece of the board game, like falling away and just like being gone forever. And it's because of the TSA. That, that sounds about right. <laughs> yes. Um, so little door, I remember first kind of becoming aware of this novel when the 
BBC miniseries adaptation was happening in 2008. Like maybe I'd heard the name of it, but I didn't know much about it. And because of that um, miniseries, I kind of, you know, uh, I don't think I ever actually watched the entire thing, but I saw enough of it to like catch, you know, the, the debtor's prison side of it. And, and, you know, the, the heart of gold and little Dorrit and, you know, the, the other, you know, characters that are around. So, so I kind of became a little bit familiar with it from that, but I had not read it until you asked to, to talk about it on this podcast. Do you remember when you first came to little Dorrit? It's, it's actually funny. So I, I am a nerd. Um, which I'm sure will shock the listeners after hearing everything I've already said. And, this is a safe space for um, And I read a lot of Dickens novels when I was in high school. And then uh, at the time, David Copperfield was my favorite. So I took a Victorian novel course um, my junior year of undergrad. And I was so excited to read Dickens. And then I saw Little Dorrit on the syllabus. I was like, why would I want to read this? I wanted to talk about David Copperfield or like at least, you know, Oliver Twist, why this like random thing? And then I read it and it spoke to me, um, which I guess we could get into when we try and explain what happens in this <laughs> novel, which is everything. Everything happens in this novel. Um, and then I decided to go to grad school so I could write about Dickens. So. <laughs> 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 okay, so first came to this one in uh, in college, but you were already a Dickens fan before that. Uh, and I think there's a lot of people who are very familiar with Dickens, but maybe less familiar with this text. So hopefully the, the summary, maybe, uh, you know, will at least expose people to it. I don't know if everyone is that listens is going to go rush out and grab it, but maybe someone will. Let us know, listeners, if you do start reading Little Dorrit because of this discussion. So Charles Dickens was a prolific writer. Uh, he wrote 15 novels, five novellas, hundreds of short stories, as well as writing nonfiction articles and touring to do lectures and readings from his published work. He really was, um, for the time period, kind of like a pop culture figure. Um, I, I think it might make more sense uh, to position him there than as like a member of the the literary canon, which I think a lot of people kind of remove and, and elevate and think of differently than like the best selling novel, you know, uh, you know, the, for today, you know, something like, um, you know, Hunger Games or, you know, something along those lines, like we kind of separate those things. And Charles Dickens has become part of the canon, but was very much a popular public figure in his day. Um, and his novels were mostly published as weekly or monthly installments where readers would get a chapter at a time. And this actually allowed Dickens to react to reader feedback while finishing the work. And so some of his plans may shift as he sees which um, which bits are, are proving popular. I think it also occasionally leads to some subplots maybe not getting resolved <laughs> at all. <laughs> Uh, as it's like, oh, I'm wrapping up. Okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, my, I, I remember hearing some story at some point of uh, like readers gathering at docks when like the next chapter of some of Dickens' works were to like call out and hear like what happened to some of the characters. Do you have any, I, I don't know the veracity of that at all, but do you have any sense of how his work was being received in his time? I uh, mean, it was mi like mix. I mean, I mean, he was very popular and people did, you know, like gather around and read together. Um, I mean, you know, before we had the serialized television show, we had the serialized radio show. And before we had the serialized radio show, we had serialized novels uh, like this. But um, I, I have read some of his contemporary critics and some people are like, oh, Dickens, I love you. And some people are like, he's overly sentimental. <laughs> he needs to calm down. Um, 
so and and he and you're right about um being a popular writer and not being taken seriously by like literary scholars in the 20th century um in certain spaces uh you know dickens was considered more of a popular writer than uh you know a great novelist um for instance in uh fr lewis's the great tradition he's like here's the trajectory of the great novel jane austen george Eliot, henry james dickens is fine he's not (laughs) <laughs> he, he he doesn't like write with like this high art form, and I'm sure some literary scholar is going to say you're um, not giving Levis his due. But honestly, I don't think Levis deserves any due. So whatever. Um, it's always fun to to pick on old critics. <laughs> <laughs> some of them some of them have interesting things to say. I I think Levis is very strange, which I feel like I probably went on a rant about him in the last episode I was on about Daniel Deronda because he wanted to cut that novel in half and just keep the Gwendolyn Harleth parts, which I do remember this discussion. Yeah, yes. Yeah. To be fair, the Gwendolyn parts are the most interesting, but that's another story for another episode <laughs> that we already did. Yes. <laughs> it's in our back catalog. I'll find the exact number and, and share it later. <laughs> so I just think it's interesting for, even like today, like when I when I start my uh, like my American lit class, I ask students like what their opinion is of the canon. And even though it's American lit, they are, like Dickens almost inevitably gets mentioned as like someone who's like part of the, that great literary tradition. But when you go back in position where things were and where he was, it's it's not as clear then. And I, I do enjoy when you have critics who are like making forward looking predictions as to where an author or work is going to land. And it just could not be more wrong. It's always nice to look back and say, oh, OK, we all have folly. <laughs> That's... <laughs> That's all of us. Um, like I teach a class on Mouse, and there's one essay that a lot of students always come about, about, uh, come across that, that was uh, published in the late 90s, and Mouse was published in the mid 80s. And they say, like, Mouse has a big reputation now, but there's no way anyone's going to be talking about this in 20 years. It's almost exactly 20 years since they were, you know, they, they wrote that. Um, okay, so uh, as we noted, Little Dort was published between 1855 and 1857 because of that serial publishing. So this would be, uh, like, if you're following along, that's a pretty long time to get the story in in these installments as the, as they're coming through um and a little bit of personal trivia about charles dickens his father had to go to a debtor's prison when charles dickens was a child and charles had to work in a factory instead of going to school and it's possible you may find some parallels between this formative experience and some of the themes in little dort if you squint and like tilt your head you're going to spot a few things that maybe align <laughs> between charles dickens own life and some of the commentary that he's trying to give about uh london society um, Little Dort was adapted three times in the silent era and again as a film in 1987. And as we said, there's a BBC miniseries produced in 2008 that has a great cast as Claire Foy, Matthew McFadden, and Andy Serkis, uh, amongst many others. And it's um, it's, it's a good uh, production. So if you're looking for like a, a, a television adaptation or a film adaptation, I'd recommend that BBC miniseries. So I did see uh, that 1987 version that like has Derek uh, or, or uh, David... David Jacoby. Uh, and it's like, I'm seeing D- Jacoby everywhere all of a sudden. <laughs> I don't know why, but I'm just coming across him again and again and again. All right. Well, before we get into the full summary of this novel, we want to thank you listeners for downloading this episode. And we especially want to thank you for supporting us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonists and support our show with, with at least $8 per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes. And we talk about the media we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of the podcast and all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. 
So spoiler summary, and I will just note again, this is a massive book. There's lots of subplots, lots of characters, lots of twists, and I'm really just doing a streamlined summary rather than like a beat for beat. Here's what happens in each chapter as, as we move along because we'd be here for a very long time. I think it was uh, on one of the places where I was like glancing at the summary to make sure I was making sense as I was writing it. They had a list of all the characters. I don't want to say it was like 40 or, or 45 characters that are named and have some effect on the plot in the story. And some of them carrying like whole subplots by themselves. So there's a lot that's happening here. So we begin the story in a prison where there's this murderer named, uh, what, what is it? How do we say this name? I'm trying to remember. Rijad. <laughs> I can't remember how it was in the audiobook. Do you have a way that you teach it? Um, when you're, uh... Usually I just call him Blandois because that's what he's called throughout most of the okay. book. We'll go with Blandois. Um, yeah. <laughs> And he's there with a smuggler named Cavaletto, and Blandois is about to go on to trial, and this will matter later. Okay, now we're going to jump ahead over to Arthur Clennam, who has just returned to England after living in China for 20 years. His father has recently died, and Arthur, uh, uh, Arthur goes to visit his mother. It's not a great visit. Arthur feels like his father may have been up to some shady business, and he wants to make amends to anyone that his father may have wronged. And his mother is a cold, angry woman who does not want to talk about that at all. And that's about it. <laughs> that we get. It's not a, like a warm relationship between Arthur and his mother. Um, and then uh, we're going to cut over to a London and debtors prison called the Marshalsea, where William Dort has been locked for 20 years. Uh, he lives there, essentially. His, he has three children, Edward, Fanny, and Amy. Amy is the youngest and was actually born in the prison. And she is kind, shy, empathetic, and self-sacrificing. Her siblings are none of these things. Uh, to support her family, Amy, called Little Dorrit, works outside the prison but must return there every night before the doors get locked. Uh, she is working for Arthur's mother, and when he meets her, Arthur is touched by Little Dorrit's kindness. He finds out that she lives at the Marshalsea, and he tries to look into her family's situation. This takes him to the Circumlocution Office, which is a government office that does nothing. This is Charles Dickens' satire about government bureaucracies, and it is one of my favorite parts of the novel. I love every description of the circumlocution office and how things happen there or don't happen there, and I wish there was more of it. And in particular, uh, there's a family who is firmly attached to government jobs uh, in which they do basically nothing but receive generous pay and high social class and respect, and they are named the Barnacles, and the Barnacles run the circumlocution office, and that is just a great name. Charles Dickens is great at naming characters. It is wonderful uh, all the time. Uh, so the barnacles make it very difficult for Arthur, mostly because they don't like to do anything at all. In his ev efforts to figure out the Dort's financial history, Arthur meets Daniel Doyce, who is a great guy, and they go into business together since Arthur is leaving his family's business behind as he suspects again that his dad maybe wasn't an honest businessman. That murderer from the beginning of the novel has been let off because of a lack of evidence, and he shows up to go visit Arthur's mom, and he seems evil. Uh, eventually, a man from a couple side plots over named Mr. Panks is able to work out that the Dorrits are actually heirs to a fairly substantial fortune, more than enough to pay off their debts and enter into the upper class as they leave the prison. It should be noted that Amy's brother has been a wastrel who has earned his way back into debtor's prison every time he left it, and her sister is working as a dancer, but not the respectable kind, but not like as scandalous as some dancers might be, just not the kind that would give her entree into the upper class at all. But now the whole Dorrit family will be leaving the prison together. Also of note, the main prison guard's son, John, has been desperately in love with little Dort, but she doesn't seem to love him, and it breaks his heart every time he talks to her, or he hears someone talk about her, or he thinks about her. Um, and John is the most melodramatic, sad character I can remember in a very long time, and I wish Dickens had written him a happy ending, but he doesn't. 
Um, also, Arthur sort of likes Little Dort, but thinks he's too old for anything but wasting away in bachelorhood, especially since every other woman that he's thought of pursuing chooses fools instead of him. Little Dort sort of likes Arthur, but thinks a respectable man like him could never love her. So they both think like the other one's uh, station makes it untenable to even consider a relationship together. The Dorts leave the Marshalsea and take a tour of Europe. Little Dort is not comfortable with the new upper class lifestyle, but her brother, sister, and her father acclimate very easily. Um, she's so uncomfortable that she actually faints when she's supposed to be changing into a nice dress to leave the marshal sea and she has to be carried out in her old dress much to the shame of her family uh fanny quickly has a suitor edmund sparkler and he had actually pursued her when she was a dancer but his family would not allow that but now she's rich so it's fine and everyone just literally pretends that he is not the dancing girl that he had a crush on before <laughs> we're just not gonna address that uh edmund's stepfather mr myrtle is considered to be a financial genius so mr dort invests his new wealth with him mr dort then falls ill and dies and it took me a little while to be sure that he had died but he definitely dies <laughs> At this point in the novel, uh, Blandois, that murderer from the beginning, starts uh, to be seen visiting Arthur's mom more frequently. Uh, and and one day after being seen there, Blandois disappears and it all looks very suspicious. So Arthur, Arthur starts to search out Blandois to clear the suspicion from his family because people think Blandois has been murdered. Uh, Mr. Myrtle is making everyone so much money, like everyone that does any business with Mr. Myrtle, like he has the touch of gold. He's got the Midas touch going. So everyone is making so much money uh, that they're so happy to have him as part of the London financial scene that he's going to be given a title uh, and made part of the, the aristocracy. His stepson, Edmund, is given a cushy job at the circumlocution office. Everyone wants to invest with him. So even Arthur puts his and Doyce's uh, business money in with him. Soon after, Mr. Myrtle visits Edmund and Fanny, and he asks if he can borrow a penknife, and he leaves and slits his wrist. It's soon discovered that it was all just a giant Ponzi scheme. Everyone who invested with him has lost all their money. Uh, there was no like get-rich scheme that was happening with him. He was just uh, a con man. Arthur is horrified uh, that he has done this with his and um, he's even more horrified that he did this to Doyce. So to protect Doyce, he declares that this was solely Arthur's decision to go into business with Myrtle. Doyce is completely free from this. Arthur gets thrown into the Marshall Sea. Dorrit, whose family has lost everything too, uh, little Dorrit, uh, visits him. Uh, he realizes she is in love with him, but now he feels like he's beneath her and doesn't want to drag her down. Uh, one of the people Arthur had been looking for, uh, had sent looking for Blandois, finds him and brings Blandois to the Marshall Sea. Uh, Arthur makes sure it's known that Blandois is alive so that his mother is not suspected of murder, but he can't do much else because he's in prison. Blandois proceeds to go and blackmail Arthur's mother. Blackmail her with what secrets, you may ask? Well, with the fact that Arthur is not her child, but had been kept from his biological mother because his biological mother had an affair with Arthur's father. Also, uh, Mrs. Clenham, Arthur's mother, suppressed a will that would have made Little Dort rich. This will is convoluted, but the wealth would land on her in the end. It all goes back I'm not, I'm not even gonna try to explain it and sorry just know Arthur's mother has done some bad things I guess <laughs> that's the main takeaway uh and uh when Blandois tries to blackmail her for this, she refuses to be blackmailed and rises from her wheelchair. I don't think I said that. She's been in a wheelchair this entire time. Uh, and she walks to uh, Amy Dort and asks for her forgiveness because little Dort is a saint. She offers it. Mrs. Clennon uh, then walks back to her house, uh, but her house uh, but before she can get there, uh, Arthur's mother collapses in the street. Uh, and But that's good for her because that building itself is going to collapse right there in front of her. Uh, just kind of out of the blue, collapsing of the entire building and everyone who was in it dies, including uh, Blandois. And they suspect some other people, but maybe, maybe not died in there. Uh, Doyce returns. Uh, that's Arthur's previous business partner. And 
he's he's made money now he he's righted his own ship and he pays off arthur's debts and gives him his old job back and arthur and amy marry the end i trimmed quite a lot of side plots for that but i think that gives us the core of little dort yeah (laughs) but you did not mention that panks who works for uh mr casby who's called the patriarch and i know that what the listeners really need is one more character they haven't read about uh, named for them. Mm-hmm. He gets, he finally gets fed up being the pawn of the capitalist cuts off Casby's hair, quits and goes and works for Clinton and Doyce. <laughs> yes. I did leave that side plot. Which, <laughs> which I personally think is one of the most satisfying parts of the novel. <laughs> It, it, it was unexpected when it happened. I did not see it as like the inevitable conclusion of that storyline. I think I, I mentioned Panks uh, and his storyline because I find him so interesting because, and I guess this can transition us into a larger conversation. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about Dickens and character. Uh, for one thing, uh, mm-hmm. this is called Little Dorrit, so you would assume that it's about Amy Dorrit, which it is, but it's also about like 30 other characters, um, yes. <laughs> which is true of most Dickens novels. Um, Bleak House, Our Mutual Friend, for instance, large web of characters. So it's uh, Dickens is not really a buildings roman kind of guy. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... <laughs> Uh, he's also known for his intricate plots. Um, so if you ever have, you know, enjoyed something like Game of Thrones um, or Lost, you might say that part of the reason they exist is because they're following in a literary tradition of Dickens. You might mm-hmm. also tell me that I'm wrong, but that's fine. No, I think there is something Dickensian about those for sure. Um, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, just talking about the characters, I think it's really interesting because Little Dorrit, I mean her situation in life does change, but she's the same at the beginning and end, right? <laughs> you know, like, like things happen around her. Uh, she is not the instigator of so many of the events that happen, uh, but she is at the heart of the story. Like, like people's relationship with her motivate many of the choices, both for good and ill, either to punish her if they're the evil characters or because they can't stand being around someone who's good because they themselves are evil or trying to make sure that she has some peace and happiness in life because she is so good for some of the good characters. So she she's at the center of a lot of the action, but she's not like agentive and altering the course of events so much that, uh, around her. And where she is at the beginning of the novel and at the end of the novel, in terms of you know being a character, it's she hasn't like learned a lesson and changed her life right no no but i i will say that i think um what makes the novel work because Dick, dickens is also in any novel but in particular this one with bureaucracy with the circulation office with his critique of the debtor's prison with his critique of harsh business practices always thinking about you know the systemic problems that impoverish Mm -hmm. um, so many um, Londoners. Um, He, what makes living in 19th century London uh, slash the world, because this is actually a pretty global novel as well. uh, Tenable is little door, the emotional connection, the uh, you know, 
commitment to being useful and doing good in the world, that kind of feeling, her outlook on life is one that Pink's Arthur, etc., end up adopting. Um, so, it, like, no- nothing changes about London by the end of this novel, right? Like, the Marshall Sea at that mm-hmm. point still stands. The circumlocution office like keeps going. At one point, uh, a barnacle comes to visit Arthur toward the end of the novel and is like, "Dude, stop bothering us." And Arthur's like, "But, <laughs> but, like, I, I want to do this right. I want to do my business right." And that's your job yeah. <laughs> is to be bothered by people yes. like me. Yeah, and, and, and Barnacle's <laughs> like, "No, no, no." No one cares about your invention. People hate inventions. Just like, just like, do your thing. It'll be fine. Leave me alone. <laughs> um, so, like, you know, there, there's no, there's no change in the system, despite Dickens point out how crap it is. Um, mm-hmm. There's a change in the attitudes of several of the people, which is also I find Pink's an interesting character to bring up, and to some degree Arthur as well, because they're mm-hmm. both at the beginning of the novel super depressed. Um, Arthur like hates his family business. He's been in China for 20 years. Uh, he thinks his family has done something wrong, which, you know, to be fair, despite being like, you know, like, you know, 800 pages or whatever, depending on what version you read of thinking this guy is super paranoid and is obsessed with a little Dorit on very tangential evidence. He actually is right. Um, you know, Panks like says things like I, what's taste. I'm a man of business. Business is all I'm made for. And by the end, he has changed his view to some degree, which is also odd in a Dickens novel mm-hmm. where characters don't always change like Little Dorrit or are drawn so flatly, which we can I can get into. Yeah. No, I think that's definitely a discussion point. So in thinking about like, things that I wanted to talk about with this novel, having just listened to it and with Dickens in general, I was thinking of describing every character as a caricature, like whatever is their most notable attribute, good or ill, that is the whole character. And so like door, little door is this saintly figure that is just good, right? She's, she's like a, a, you know, a tiny, you know, a tiny Tim type Dickens character where there's just so much goodness that can't be shaken by all the evil that surrounds her and the suffering that surrounds her and the death that visits her family, right? Like that's still not going to shake her. She's still just good. And then there are so many of the the side characters who are, uh, you know, whether it's like the barnacles with that, that perfect name for the description and the satire that Dickens is presenting about that kind of government job. Um, And, and that's all they are is, is just lazy, right? (laughs) Just lazy and want to be left alone to collect a government paycheck. They attach them to the ship uh, of, they attach themselves to the ship of the government and glom on and never let go. Mm -hmm. And then you like so many other characters, like it's, it's like you, you meet them and it's like an exaggerated character sketch and there's something about Dickens style and what I, maybe what is it, maybe it is what I expect with Dickens, but like, I don't mind that at all. <laughs> like I love it with these, with these characters, when you do like know them within a paragraph description and, and the physical attributes that get described are, you know, mirroring the, the emotional reality beneath them. Uh, and, and you just kind of know exactly what this character is and you're not 
waiting for that twist where it's like, oh, no, this this one really is like, no, nope, that guy was told we were told that he was a murderer. He is. <laughs> you know, that's it. Uh, it was not was not a case of uh, the wrong man being accused. And every like description of Blandois just convinces us more that this is this is a bad guy right here. Um, and you had included in the notes for our discussion a quote from E.M. Forrester from aspects of the novel that says Dickens people are nearly all flat. Nearly everyone can be summed up in a sentence. And yet there's a wonderful feeling of human depth. Probably the immense vitality of Dickens causes his characters to vibrate a little so that they borrow his life and appear to lead one of their own. It is a conjuring trick. And I cannot say that eloquently, but I sign off on that description from Forrester about Dickens and his characters. You know, I, I really do think it's true. I mean, it's it's a quote that I've come across so many times reading Dickens' criticism. Um, and it actually, I'm sure that not everyone is as into this as I am, um, because not everyone is a literary scholar. But actually, like, Ian Forrester just writes so beautifully about Dickens. Um, and I, I think that, you know, even though we, I think a lot of... Uh, literary discussion sometimes gets boiled down to round characters, good black characters, bad. That's not what he's saying at all. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I think Dickens in some ways shows that your characters don't have to necessarily change to be interesting. Yeah. Uh, Like I think again, like for most people, the most, known Dickens story is Christmas Carol and yes, Scrooge changes, but no other character does. And yet we all remember so many of those other characters that we meet, you know, in, in that novel. And it is those like one sentence descriptions, but it, it just works. He, he definitely has, um, you know, a, a skill for, for that type of writing, which um, you, like you're saying, it's not, round characters good flat characters bad it's i sometimes is well how are they being presented and what is their role in the story and dickens where it is so plot centric and so um like intertwined so much of what's going to happen having those characters be those like quickly understood and memorable versions of themselves so that when they come back on the scene because some of these characters disappear for chapters and chapters and then pop back in and have a key moment you know for the plot and i was never feeling lost of like wait who is that one because they they have that like um you know cliff notes version of of who they are that sticks out so so well for me and you know there there's something in i think that um it there's there's something about the fact that they're all in a character web together uh they all vibrate with each other to you know borrow some of forrester's language um a lot of a lot of scholars mm-hmm. have talked about this lately about how like dickens is interested in communities and how they form and how feelings hold these characters together. Um, it, you know, he, he's always made fun of for sentiment. As I said at the beginning, like people have been complaining about this since the 19th century. There's like an apocryphal quote from Oscar Wilde. That's something like I cried tears of joy when a sentimental figure from another novel died. Um, Hannah, what is, I mean, I know you've said some about how Dickens was received, but in terms of like critiques of his writing style or anything like that, do you know anything from how he was being received at the time versus maybe how he is received now? I mean, I I certainly think that you can go back and find reviews that um, are very similar to what people are saying now, especially, um, 
I mean, there, there, are, there are literally books that's like Dickens criticism through the ages. And um, they, they definitely still um, were complaining about Dickens' sentimentality. And there was a notice that he was putting plot over character to some degree. Some of his novels um, were more well-received than others. For example, no one but me, I think, in the entire, like, history of Dickens reading has ever liked Barnaby Rudge. Um, <laughs> it's his other historical novel that's not A Tale of Two Cities, which, at the time it came out, people also thought A Tale of Two Cities was overly sentimental. Um, which, you know, people like George Lukacs, who was one of, like, the great novel theorists of the 20th century, also was like, hey... This novel doesn't feature that great of a character. Um, they're kind of boring. Also, I'm pretty sure Dickens just wanted to like write something against the backdrop of the revolution. It's 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 just sentimentalist garbage. Go read Sir Walter Scott. Uh, I disagree heavily with Lukács. Don't go read Sir Walter Scott. <laughs> and do go read Dickens. I mean, I, I think that that goes unsaid whenever you're talking to me. <laughs> um so besides the plot i think one thing that stood out to me that i was not expecting because i don't at least my relationship or my idea of dickens includes is how like funny and witty his satire of the government was with the circumlocution office like it really felt uh for me like like mark twain or jonathan swift uh which i know dickens absolutely has a social conscience and is doing thematic addressing of social ills, but I can't remember anything that was so comedically satirical as the circumlocution office. Oh, Dickens, Dickens is actually quite funny in many of his works. Um, the circumlocution office is a good example. Uh, he is really, really funny um, in bleak house, which I know that doesn't sound I, like I, it from the title. <laughs> yes. I, I actually put off reading Bleak House for many years because I'm like, oh, this will be so depressing because if Little Dorrit was depressing, then, you know, it's called Bleak House. It's literally, you know, warning me that this is going to be sad. And I mean, yes, it's a Dickens novel. Little children die. I sound a little dismissive there. I didn't mean it that way. Um, but it it is like he's he's making fun of the court system and is well known by lawyers um, as, and like it's taught in law school. Um, well, I, I won't say it gets so much taught in law school as it gets referenced in law school. Um, but you know, uh, I, I, the reason why I liked Dickens in the first place is I picked up David Copperfield and I thought it was so funny. Um, mm -hmm. And I would read passages aloud to my friends as a child, you know, like I said, I was a nerd. <laughs> um, but yeah, like the circumlocution office really just feels like reading about, you know, the DMV. Um, but the 19th century. Yes. Yeah. I, and like you said, the uh, specificity of some of the social criticism that's present in Dickens, maybe that doesn't carry over. But if you just abstract everything like one step, it's like, oh, I know what he's talking about. Uh, and in this case, it'd be like if I move circumlocution office over to DMV, it's it's the same level of frustration of like interaction and try, trying to sort things out. 
I will say that I did have a very nice interaction last time I went to the DMV, so that's not totally fair. Yeah. But <laughs> and but yeah. also, like the poor DMV, we're double recording tonight, and our other uh, topic we're going to be uh, talking about is Zootopia, which also has <laughs> some DMV slander as part of its plot. So poor DMV in the in this night of recording for us. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, originally, I guess side note, you know, this out uh, when I. Josh that I was recording about Lil Dort and Zootopia he thought it was the same episode and he said what what is your connection there and I said oh I can think of many actually um which there's a lot of social commentary over uh, you know in both yeah. these um so it, besides the satire and the rather intense plot and interweaving plot what for you stands out about Little Dort to make it one of the one of your favorite books I, I definitely think that um there is just sort of this relate you you just sort of can relate to where the characters are um across time and space uh, arthur clinham is losing hope at the beginning of this novel amy dorrit is stuck um trying to take care of everyone who won't take oh, care that of that is a good description she's stuck she she's in a if i if i may She's in a prison. Um, they're 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 all in a prison. Um, I think I mentioned that this novel was a global novel very briefly before, but it actually begins in Marseille. Uh, when the Dorits get out of prison, they travel. Arthur's coming from China at the end of the novel, and what Dickens does at one point, very very obviously. Uh, to the point that my students were like, yes, we get it, Hannah. He's, he's, the world is a prison. He, he draws parallels between people being stuck. Um, and actually, I have the quote. It appeared on the whole to Lil Dort herself that the same society in which they lived greatly resembled a superior sort of martial sea. And the Marshal Sea is the Dare's prison. And this is after that they've they've left the Marshal Sea and yes. are now uh, like Traveling. seeing the upper class world and tr- mm-hmm. and international travel. Yeah, numbers of people seem to come abroad pretty much as people had come into the prison through debt, through idleness, relationship, curiosity, and general and fitness for getting on at home. They were brought into these foreign towns in the custody of couriers and local followers, just as the debtors had been brought into the prison. And because it's Dickens. He, he goes on um, <laughs> for a while. Um, I like it. Some people aren't thrilled, but, um, you know, it, it talks about, it, it continues to draw parallels between the inmates of the prison and the inmates of society. Society is a trap. Um, you're trapped in the conventions of society. Capitalism is a trap. And no matter what part you play, you're pretty miserable. Um in the world of Dickens and honestly real life. And, you know, in, in other novels, he writes about the school, um, like uh, Dombey and Son. He writes about the court system. He writes about the workhouses and on and on and on. Um, and so there, there's a famous critic named D.A. Miller who talks about how the Victorian novel really explores self-regulation and how people self-discipline um and that's how society functions and dickens does definitely explore that and explores being trapped so i i found it really interesting um especially as a 
broke undergrad who sometimes like wondered what's the best direction I can take in my life to think about, you know, well, people are overwhelmed by this world. Um, Amy's overwhelmed and she, she really like, like many women in Dickens, which I also think uh, the women in this novel are really interesting, uh, thinks that she really is weak and can't do much. Um, she, you know, Arthur just, I mean, he, it, it's like, you know, 800, 800 pages of author being super depressed um, about one thing or another, <laughs> whether it's love or his mother or being uh, business failings. And yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, uh, Hanks, you know, describes his life as fag and grind, fag and grind, which other grad students um, quoted to me as like, you know, a state of life. So, you know, Dickens, like, and, and people say that this is one of his darkest novels, which fair. So Dickens asks, like, the, the world is a terrible place. How can we as individuals cope and live in it and try to make it better? And I'm not saying that Dickens has the right answers, but he certainly understands the world um, in a particular way. And it's certainly interesting to read. And I do think there is something in fellow feeling, which, you know, arguing against individualism on something called the protagonist podcast. Um. <laughs> we, we have all kinds of protagonists that we talk about. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, I think while I understand people saying this is like one of his most depressing novels, like it does end with, you know, the classic mark of a comedy <laughs> with the wedding uh, at the end, like there's, um, a, you know, a sense of, betterment for the characters that we've come to be most invested in and want to see the most positive outcome. And there's a sense of, uh, you know, punishment to a degree for, I mean, different levels for, for the, the characters that were, you know, villains of the piece. And then there's also like the idea of like, well, the circumlocution office is still just doing its thing over there. <laughs> that, that, that does not change. Uh, but, but like the individual status of some of the characters adjust enough that you feel, I think um, like, like a, the right morality has been rewarded, you know, in the, in the end. And as you're noting, it's not a morality of like self-righteousness. It's a morality of empathy in, and, um, and, and like Dorit and, uh, and Arthur are both very self-sacrificing. And that's why we want to see them rewarded in the end. Not because, uh, you know, they, they were, um, like you're saying, like our, our, our chosen one from prophecy leads that, that must you know bear it out or anything like that. It's because no, these were the, the good people who tried to help other people with no self-interest involved. Like they just wanted to make other people's lives better. Uh, and, and that is actually something that is like perplexing to so many of the other characters, like this idea of, uh, of selfless desire to make other people's lives better just cannot be comprehended by, uh, the villains. And by, even by like the, uh, you know, the circumlocution office and the, and the barnacles, they're not, you know, villains per se in terms of someone like, uh, you know, the murderer that we have in the beginning and, you know, runs through the novel or anything like that. They're just so disinterested in, uh, the society around them that we loathe them as readers and we, we want to see them, uh, you know, receive some sort of comeuppance, even, even if it doesn't land on them. Uh, but you know, in the end we have Arthur getting back in good with, uh, his business partner who was the right business partner for him and, and him and Dort, uh, getting, getting married. And, and I think there is some satisfaction to be drawn from that. And as you're saying, 
some commentary beyond just satirizing the negatives. I think there's this positive takeaway that, that we can find here. They went down into a modest life of usefulness and happiness. Um, and, you know, like, I, I find that description really interesting uh, because it's not like they were just happy and lived um, happily ever after. They, they were useful. Um, and throughout the novel, there's talk of duty and doing your duty. And it's the thing that causes Arthur to admire Amy in the first place because she's taking her father. You know, there are scenes where she literally doesn't eat and gives her food to her father um, because she is that self-sacrificing. But duty is also used against characters like when Hanks has to go around collecting for Casby. He says, well, it's your duty, you know. You, you got to do this horrible thing. You're the villain. Um, well, you know, Casby, um, to talk about again, this minor character that no one knows, you know, <laughs> pretend he, he basically looks like Santa Claus and mm -hmm. walks around and everyone um, who he squeezes dry is like, oh, he's so wonderful. He's the patriarch when really he just is, you know, an outright villain and he definitely deserves to get his hair cut off. Um, he does not deserve to look like Santa. Which, you know, is a, is a very low level of analysis there, but <laughs> it is what it is. I, I do, I, I, pre, I, like Dickens is not a revolutionary in the sense of like Karl Marx. He's not calling for an overthrow of systems despite critiquing them greatly. But I, what I find interesting also about this novel is that the characters also like seem to out like outdo Dickens and they have their own say and they find their own ways to navigate the world and uh, I think sometimes the novel pushes boundaries that Dickens didn't mean to push can you expand on that because I'm curious what you mean when you say the the characters like out outdo Dickens what what are you getting at with that so a major example I would say is, is so like Dickens was a pretty conservative guy. And I also, anytime I talk about Dickens and women, um, I have to footnote uh, that at one point he literally tried to get his wife locked away in an asylum. He was not like a good dude, like despite admiring some of his writing, not a good dude. Um, a lot yeah. of, a lot of themes yeah. in his work that make us want to be better people, but he did not always live up to those himself. No. Uh, which is one reason why I say the, the uh, books, um, are are much in some ways um smarter than him he he it was very conservative when it came to women little dorrit was sort of like the feminine ideal or like he has characters um in other novels where he has a hero marry a very silly girl and then she dies and he finds like the dutiful girl who is his best friend to be the girl he should have married all along and you know there's you know there's the figure of the angel of the house in the 19th century and Dickens would, you know, kind of thumbs that up to put it very simply. And so there are characters like Fanny, Little Dorrit's sister, who's a dancer. And you're not supposed to like Fanny. But at one point in the novel, Little Dorrit's like, Fanny, your behavior. Um, and Fanny's like, you, you're the one who got me a job as a dancer. You're the one who put me in this situation. Like, I, you know, the world is the way it is, kid. Uh, I'm just like trying to live in this world. And, you know, Amy, despite being a good girl, 
in Dickens's view, also like has to find ways to navigate this world. Because at one point, her father's like, you should definitely like get with John Chivery so I get favoritism because I'm in this prison. And it puts her in an impossible situation because she doesn't want to. Um, and she does not want to sell herself, but like she also wants to do her duty to her father and she has to find a way to navigate around that. There's also a minor character uh, named Ty Coram, and she might be one of the most interesting characters of the novel because these characters uh, named the Meagles uh, take her in uh, because she's a foundling and they give her a home as a servant, uh, but they also rename her from her name, Harriet, uh, to Taddy um, Coram, and they tell her to control her temper and they want her to do things. And at one point she just gets fed up and she is like, don't you named me like a cat or a dog. I'm a person. And then she leaves and Dickens wants you to think that the Meagles are the good people and Tag Coram's throwing a fit. But her character is so vibrant in that moment and points out the power differentials in that relationship so well that you cannot help but side with her. And of course it's Dickens, right? So he like contains that rebellion by the end of the novel. But these are there these always these little like pockets of the characters trying to be something more than what Dickens may have intended, which I just find fascinating. And, and I think this happened throughout many 19th century novels, even in authors I find really boring, like Anthony Trollope, but that's another episode for another day. <laughs> no, I, I like that idea of sometimes what, what you're saying, like uh, we, if we know enough about the author and Charles Dickens has been written about and well-known enough that we do know a lot of like his personal beliefs and his, his personal life. And also like his, um, you know, what ideas he seems to be embedding in so many of his works. But like you said, like sometimes those characters that, kind of take on a life of their own so much that they 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 kind of kick against the pricks of of you know the, the boundaries that they're being the that's being set around them right right and you know i think that that is very in keeping of the spirit of the 19th century hannah i know this is a long novel as we've noted and and i know that in some markets, authors were paid by the word. Is there truth to the rumors I've heard that Dickens himself was also paid by the word? No. So I don't know. I can't speak for every author. Um, but actually, if you do Google uh, Dickens paid by the word, you'll get, no, this is a myth. And uh, it depended, I think, on contracts, um, how specific authors were paid and how their novels were published. But typically um, for Dickens, I believe, with his serial format, it was installments. And also since Dickens was also an editor of some of his own publications, it, you know, I think he also had considerations of like, when am I going to line like certain like chapters of like authors up with each other so I can get, pe get people to keep paying, uh, you know, to read household words. Mm -hmm. uh, at one point he and Elizabeth Gaskell had a fight because he blamed, you know, his failures on her. <laughs> Um, and he was always, he was wrong. It's like, and I'm sure she took that well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Dickens was not like a great guy to collaborate with. I mean, like he, he had friendship, like he and Wookie Collins were like bros and they also had a falling out. Um, yeah. And there were also, 
you know, dangers to serial publication too, because Dickens's final novel was never finished and it was a mystery. So, um, we still don't know who killed Edwin Drood. Oh, I bet that has never been picked up by other authors to explore. <laughs> there's, there's absolutely not a musical about it where <laughs> audience members can vote uh, and pick the end. <laughs> okay, I, I did not know that bit of trivia about that. That is fantastic. Uh, but I, I mean, with the serialized storytelling, there would be incentive, I think, to to keep things going. Uh, you know, once you have an audience invested in a plot. Uh, so maybe things get lengthened out, but also as you're noting, like there is the, the ebb and flow of, of like aligning, you know, beginnings of new stories, ends of stories, overlapping some so that people become invested in those new stories as they're, you know, in the same collection and that sort of thing. And and it also depends on where things were published because, you know, um, some, some serialized things were published, uh, as individual volumes. I've actually seen the individual installments of Full Dorrit in the Duke library, uh, collection super cool um they, you know they had ad they had ads and stuff in them so you know publications always been tied to capitalism uh but you know something like a tell two cities was published alongside other works and you know in periodicals it's really interesting to see the fiction and the non-fiction wished together mm-hmm. well hannah do you have any final thoughts about little dort or charles dickens that you want to share before we wrap up I de- if you're interested in social issues, I definitely think that you can look at Dickens. I, I think it's also worth thinking about the parallels with the contemporary. Um, it- it's actually really interesting how and horrifying how many of these things haven't gone away. For instance, uh, how you know debtors' prisons um, continue to operate in different ways now. At one point, Dorrit um, says of her father, I think it's really terrible that he's had to pay with his life and his money both because you were in debtor's prison until you paid off your debt, but a lot of people couldn't pay off their debt because they were in debtor's prison. Um, And you also, you know, sometimes got stuck with fees and that, you know, mirrors our own prison system. Um, I'm currently actually reading a book right now. We do this till we free us by Mariam Kaba, which is about prison abolition uh, in our contemporary moment. And it's a very different focus. Um, and so there's black feminism, but I also see echoes of some of the experiences of the characters in Little Dorn. Yeah, I, I think it's one reason why Dickens' texts still resonate is that affinity of issues that have carried through time, but it's also something that can be deeply depressing <laughs> to realize. Um, you know, how sharp his critique was um, about a lot of these social structures and to see those parallels still so present in our day. Yeah, my, my students at one point said, when did prison stop making you pay extra for food? And the answer is never really, depending on, like, like you know, place and time. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I will just say, I uh, like I said, I listened to the audiobook and I was very compelled. Uh, this this was good. I'm glad that you asked us to do this. And it made me want to go check out some of those adaptations. And I am just fascinated with the idea of a silent film adaptation of this novel. <laughs> like, how pared down must the narrative be for their five minute reels <laughs> that they were able to use? Um, 
But that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us, listeners. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. You can reach us by emailing feedback at ProtagonistPodcast.com, or also on Twitter. You can follow at ProtagonistPod or at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Disney Minute. And our Facebook fan page is Facebook.com slash ProtagonistPodcast. And also, Dueling Genre hosts a Discord channel with all of the podcast hosts. Uh, present there to talk about their recent episodes. Hannah, is there anything you would like to plug? Uh, you can find me at Vox Popcast. Um, it's a weekly pseudo academic roundtable where we discuss a different pop culture topic every week. And we've had uh, another member of the Vox Popcast, Mav, on several times over here. So, listeners, if you enjoy their insights, we invite you to go check out their podcast as well. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. Enjoy editing this. It's okay. This will just be a little edit point for Andrew here.